This audio lecture is brought to you by RTS on iTunes U at the virtual campus of Reformed Theological Seminary. To listen to other lectures and to access additional resources, please visit us at itunes.rts.edu. For additional information on how to take distance education courses for credit towards a fully accredited Master of Arts in Religion degree, please visit our website at virtual.rts.edu. So what did Constantine do? Well, being the gentleman that he was, he wrote some nice letters. Wrote a letter to Alexander and a letter to Arius, encouraging them to reconcile. It didn't work. So what did Constantine do then? He decided to call a council, a church council. And this time, it was to be even larger than the previous Council of Alexandria. In fact, Constantine invited representatives from all the churches in Christendom to come and to discuss this question. Generally speaking, the question is, what is the relationship between the Father and the Son? What is their relationship? Now, Constantine uh, claimed that he was inspired by God to convene this council uh, at Nicaea. But we also have evidence that it appears that he was following the advice of his theological advisor. Uh, no. <laughs> Hoseus, the Bishop of Cordova in Spain. Hoseus of Cordova. He will have significant influence on Constantine, uh, although that will at a later point diminish. It was decided that the council should be held in Nicaea, which just so happened to be only 20 miles from the imperial palace in Nicomedia. And so the emperor summoned all the bishops of his empire and even offered to pay their way. Each bishop was to bring two presbyters from his church and he was permitted to bring three servants. The council met first on May 20th, 325. May 20th, 325. So we are now in point five up there. Council of Nicaea, 325 A.D. This is the first ecumenical council of the Christian church. What do I mean ecumenical? By ecumenical, I mean it is a church which has representatives from all parts of Christendom. We have evidence that it was attended by about 300 bishops, which represents a very significant portion of all of the bishops in the Roman Empire. And if you count presbyters and servants we're talking about an assembly of upwards to 1,500 people 
who came to Nicaea. The Eastern Church was far better represented than the Western version, the Western side. The Western churches only sent seven delegates. In fact, we can mention some of them. One was from Spain, Hoseus of Cordova himself. There was one from France, from North Africa, Italy, two from Italy, and two from Rome. So, relatively few representatives from the Western Church, primarily they came from the East. We even have evidence of one person coming from beyond the Roman Empire, from Persia, Bishop John from Persia. Now, Eusebius, yes? Uh, only because I think that that's the locale is, 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 in the, is more in the east. And so it was a, a longer distance for the people to come, more difficult for them to, to get away. Eusebius of Caesarea, who was also in attendance, gives a very glowing report of the procession and talks about Constantine in the most glorious terms. Constantine himself was actually there. And Constantine himself really opens up the uh, proceedings. And in it, he spends a nice little uh, speech in which he urges all parties to reconcile and to, to resolve this problem. Now, what's very interesting is that Constantine was not just a spectator at the Council of Nicaea. He seems to have participated pretty actively in the proceedings. Now, this raises all kinds of interesting questions about the relationship of politics and religion. Uh, we have to ask ourselves, and we don't have any ready answers, but what was Constantine's motivation? Was his goal uh, more practical, just to simply bring about peace in the church so that he could get about the business of expanding his empire? Or did he have any theological motivations? It's hard to say. Uh, some scholars, F.F. F. Bruce, for example, believes that Constantine was in fact a Christian who was interested uh, at some level with these very important theological issues. Uh, but I, I tell you, when I think about this, I, I, if I put it in contemporary terms, uh, I wonder how we would respond if President Clinton were to participate and throw the uh, authority of his office behind a particular theological position. The point I'm making is the mixing of politics and religion. And there have been times, and one of the ironies here is that I'm going to get just, I'll, talk, I'll anticipate myself here a little bit, but that, the, that in, in a fundamental sense, Constantine made a decision at the Council of Nicaea, a theological decision. And the, the fact that he made that decision uh, carried with it, uh, at least for the majority, a sense of obligation to accept 
his theological judgment. Uh, and the fact that Nicaea comes out of, is, is, helps define orthodoxy, it raises the very intriguing question. Uh, here we have a guy who we're not even sure was a Christian making a decision, or at least participating in a powerful way in a decision that has forever defined orthodox Christianity. That's what I mean by the mixing of politics and religion. Uh, now, I have to, in the final analysis, trust that the Holy Spirit, that God in His providence, has worked through the ineptitudes and the biases and the uh, misguided motivations of politicians as well as theologians to bring about orthodoxy in the church. But there is a little bit of tension when you realize that Constantine played a fairly powerful role in the definition of what, has, of what is recognized as orthodoxy. And, and I think while there are lots of, of, uh, of uh, discontinuities in terms of relationship between Clinton and, and uh, Constantine, I mean, one had ruled the world, basically, and the other one just <coughs> rules a part of it. Uh, but I think that the, the point is, for us at least, moderns, we would find it somewhat disconcerting to have a, a, a governor of our country to participate in theological decisions. Now, I think there are some folks who believe that that uh, by taking his particular stand on abortion, that he has, in fact, contributed to the theological uh, debate to put his two cents in. So I suppose that, that, that even that is one way of looking at it. What, that's a very good question. And, and the fact of the matter is, is that there was a time, and I'm going to mention this as we go on, where the Arians did win and their view was the dominant view. But in the final analysis, it worked out where the minority view uh, that we now call orthodoxy eventually became the majority view. That's, that's what's so terribly interesting about Nicaea is because I'm going to, in fact, I'll mention there were three parties, three groups at Nicaea. There was the view of Alexander, which we now call Nicene Orthodoxy, it was a minority view, a minority group at Nicaea. The other minority view was that of Arius. The majority view was a semi-Arian view. So in this case, as things started out at Nicaea, uh, the Orthodox view was in the minority. And through a series of circumstances, things changed. And eventually, the minority view of Alexander and, and, and Athanasius later on becomes the dominant view accepted at Nicaea. I had said that there were three parties uh, at Nicaea. The Orthodox party... Uh, headed by Bishop of Alexandria, Alexander. And I had stressed that this was a minority viewpoint going into the council at Nicaea. There were a number of other people who uh, were behind Bishop 
Alexander Hosius of Cordova. Incidentally, I, 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 I delight in pointing out that here we have an Hispanic who had an important role in the Council of Nicaea. Hosius of Cordova of Spain. We tend to sometimes look at history in, in uh, uh, very waspish kinds of ways. Well, here's an example of someone who is a European Hispanic. Also supporting Alexander was a young uh, associate by the name of Athanasius. And he will figure largely in the developments after Nicaea. But we just mentioned that in passing. Athanasius was very, very energetic in support of the Orthodox view. The second group were the Arians. Uh, they were there in fairly significant numbers. Estimations run to be about 20 bishops who would have supported Arius there. Uh, the most prominent supporter, supporting bishop of Arius was... Uh, Eusebius of Nicomedia. Uh, he'll play, we'll see his name again. And make sure, this is, this is just to warn you about the final exam. There's a Eusebius of Nicomedia and a Eusebius of Caesarea who were in this council of Nicaea. It could very well show up somewhere. Dave. About 20. They estimate around 20 bishops who strongly supported Arius. Eusebius of Caesarea is the one. Eusebius of Nicomedia. Often, yes. Yes. He also gives an account of this event as well. No, no. Nicomedia. Caesarea is a good guy. <laughs> Nicomedia is a bad guy. Does that make it simple for you? <laughs> there you go. Start working those, those uh, techniques. Uh, at any rate, the Arians were not a majority. So they were a minority group as well. There were some Arian bishops from uh, Chalcedon, uh, the city of Chalcedon, and Ephesus there. The third group, the majority of bishops coming into Nicaea, belonged to a middle-of-the-road group, a group headed up by the bishop of Caesarea, Eusebius of Caesarea. Okay, so the, the bad guy is Eusebius of Nicomedia, the mediator, the mediating position is headed up by Eusebius of Caesarea. Uh, now Eusebius, as it turns out, ends up holding hands with the Orthodox in the end. But he has some struggle before he gets there. Okay, that gives you the, the parties involved. Sometimes people look at Nicaea and they get this picture, everybody hated Arius and Orthodoxy was established hands down, no discussion. <clears throat> Not quite the case. Uh, it's more complex than that. And again, let me emphasize that some of the ideas of Arius did have some currency in a broad range of churches in early Christendom, particularly the idea of the subordination of the Son to the Father.
uh, and perhaps and some people interpret that in terms of maybe being a little bit lesser God. So he just takes it a little bit further. Let's look at the course of events at Nicaea. Early on, the Arians took the initiative at the council. They understood that they were the minority and they had to uh, do something. So they proposed a creed, a doctrinal statement for approval to the General Assembly. It had the signature of 18 bishops. This was so strongly worded that even those in the mediating party, the middle party, were offended at the Arian creed, the Arian doctrinal statement. It created a great deal of animosity toward Arius and the Arians because it was so strongly worded. Well, the heat was so great that of those 18 original signers of the, the, uh, the creed, the Arian creed, 16 of them quickly said, I didn't mean it. I removed my signature from this document because the heat was so great. There were two who, however, who, however insisted on uh, articulating having their signature affixed to this document. Well, in all of this turmoil, this animosity going on, Eusebius of Caesarea, who also happens to be somewhat friendly with Constantine, decides to put forth his old creed that he had used back at his church in Caesarea in place of the, the, uh, the creed of Arius for general approval by the council at, at uh, Nicaea. Uh, this is the one, I think, in fact, I think it may have even been a baptismal creed used at, for people who were converted, these are the things they had to affirm to be baptized in the church in Caesarea. Eusebius thought, well, it works for us in Caesarea. Maybe it'll work for everybody here at Nicaea. This creed clearly acknowledges the deity of Christ. So Eusebius is basically orthodox here on that point. But the thing that Eusebius in his creed avoided was this key term, homoousios. That is of the same essence. He does not specifically say, he's willing to say Christ is deity, but you know a Sabalius, a Sabalian could say that as well. And even uh, a Unitarian monarchist could say that their Christ is, a, is deity in some sense. But this Caesarean creedal statement is, does not go on to say that the Son is homoousios, of the same essence with the Father. Matt? I'll get to that. You're anticipating the lecture. That's happened to me before, by the way. Um, at any rate, there is... Eusebius puts forth his Caesarean Creed, used at his church... And he gives it to an audience that is anti-Arian because of the Arian creedal statement put forward first. And what happened is a lot of those signers of the original statement put forth by Arius, 
those 18 guys were willing to sign this statement by Eusebius. And that made everybody very nervous. If these Arians are willing to sign the Eusebius document, there must be something wrong with it. And so the majority find themselves being very cautious about this statement which does not have homoousios in it. The Nicene Creed. So here you have a tense situation. There is a growing anti-Aryan mood. They're very concerned about these, the very, very radical formulations put forth by the Arians. Now, sensing the tension, Hosius, the Bishop of Cordova, whispers, it is said, in, in essence, into Constantine's ear and says, why don't you suggest that we include the term homoousios to describe the relationship of the Son to the Father. Constantine himself took the advice of his advisor, Hosius, and according to Eusebius of, Nicom of, of Caesarea, in his account of Nicaea, says that Constantine himself made the suggestion that homoousios, the phrase that suggests that the Son is of the same exact essence with the Father, ought to be included in any creedal statement that comes out of Nicaea. Now, please understand the importance of that. Here you have the Christian emperor of the world, basically. A powerful individual. And he says... This is a word I'd like to see in the creedal statement. The point is, I th it's fair to say, I, I believe that that created some pressure on a group of, on this assembly to include this uh, term. A term, incidentally, loathed by the Arians. They did not want to say that the son was of the exact same essence with the father, homoousios. So under Hosius' guidance, Eusebius of Caesarea's creedal statement is revised and resubmitted to the group. And it's what we call the Nicene Creed. It's a revision of the creed proposed by Eusebius of Caesarea. And it had several distinctive features. So we've got three creeds proposed. The Arian Creed, which was universally rejected. The Caesarean Creed of Eusebius, which made people nervous because so many Arians seemed to be willing to sign it. And then the revision of the Caesarean Creed, which I am calling the Nicene Creed, and which is called the Nicene Creed. Well, I don't know if they always got along that well. <laughs> did they have to have uh, unanimous? No. In fact, it did not have unanimous support. The Arian Creed had 18 bishops to sign off on it? Originally, 18 bishops who, when, when it was proposed to the General Assembly 
of bishops. It had, with the proposal, 18 bishops who had already signed it. Uh, some of them, not not necessarily. Okay, no, no. Well, okay, just a, a number of the Arians who signed this one and had been rejected were also willing to sign the Caesarean one. And that made the general body concerned. Now, the Nicene Creed, or the revision of the Caesarean Creed, stressed even more strongly than Eusebius, the deity of Christ. And above all, it included the term homoousios, making it very clear that the Son is of the exact same essence as the Father. And then, in a, in a, in a, a, a move that reflects the very strong anti-Aryan mood of the assembly, there is an anathema attached at the end which pronounces a curse in effect on all who would take hold to a view that is like Arius's. So there's a condemnation of any view that even reeks, comes close to the view of Arius. The bottom line is there is no room at all for the view of Arius at Nicaea. Now, this phrase, homoousios, is very significant. We're at this point now. What kind of practical uh, consequences it brought to those guys who, who were Arians? What's the practical consequences to them? I'll, I'll, I'll mention some of those in just a moment. The phrase homoousios was even before Nicaea somewhat controversial. First of all, it's not a biblical term. But even more importantly, this is a term employed by a declared heretic to describe his understanding of, God, of Christ. Paul of Samosata, the dynamic monarchian, had used this term homoousios in his conception that Christ was a man who had been adopted by God and thus gradually elevated to divine status. What made this term controversial for, uh, for some of the people is the fact that it is a term used by a heretic to describe Christ. It had bad connotations to it for some folk. And there were a lot of people who, although they finally signed on with the Nicene Creed, had some reservations about the use of that term. I think we can understand why they might have had some concern if a heretic had used this term. And later on it causes a lot of problems with the acceptance of, within this, in this whole controversy. Tim? Yes. Well, for them, it, it did it connoted 
uh, too strong of a uh, description of the relationship between the father and the son. They wanted to stress the difference. That was their motive and their agenda, not to stress the likeness of it. Uh, they're inconsistent here, perhaps. That's what they do. Uh, that's part of the discussion that goes on, is they try to disassociate it from Paul of Samosata and, and pour into it their own Nicene understanding of that term. But nevertheless, even having accepted this term, I mean, after all, you've got the Constantine having put the full weight of his authority behind the use of that term, even people who had reservations accepted that term. And of course, they now are, are working really hard to distinguish homoousios as at Nicaea from homoousios used by Paul of Samosata. Uh, so, the term was retained. And I think technically, the term is a perfectly good one. It does communicate, uh, if you take it out of the context of Paul of Samosata, it does by itself technically communicate just what the Orthodox Nicaeans want. They do want to stress that the Father and the Son are of the same essence. They're co-substantial. There's another way of saying that. And so they go ahead and include that. Now there was some discussion of another term to be used in place of homoousios. And that's the term homoiousios. I'll spell that for you because I guess I didn't write it up there. H-O-M-O-I ousios. O-U-S-I-O-S. Another term that was under consideration was this term, homoiousios. H-O-M-O-I ousios. O-U-S-I-O-S. That means... <coughs> that the Son is of similar essence with the Father. Not the exact same essence, but a similar essence. That's a view that will come up again after Nicaea. That term is discussed and is essentially rejected. Some people have called it the battle of the diphthongs because there's only <laughs> that I there. Uh, and of course, there's a big difference when you're talking about the relationship of the Father and the Son to say, on the one hand, He is of the exact same essence or He is similar to. And the general majority view was that homoousios better reflects the orthodox view. So, you can see what happened. Uh, what was a minority view, that of Alexander and Athanasius, now becomes the majority view in the process of Nicaea. Very interesting development. Paul Samosata? No, that's why it's so controversial. 
that's why there's such there's some hesitation about this word is because it was associated with Paul of Samosata. Uh, but in the but in the course of Nicaea, another term comes up. Paul of Samosata? Who's they? I, I don't recall that specifically. But who am I to disagree with, with Dr. Sproul? <laughs> About what? Alexander. Was he? At this, well, they had clear ideas of what it was they believed. Uh, but the events happened fairly quickly, moved right along, and they just seized the opportunity. Okay, let's move on here. Uh, everyone, all, I should say almost all, not everyone, but most of the bishops then s subscribed to the revised creed under the guidance of, of Hosius with its emphasis on homoousios. And even the middle group headed by Eusebius of Caesarea after some reticence, decided to throw in their lot with the Orthodox. There were two bishops who were willing to sign the Nicene Creed, but they would not agree to the last part which contained the condemnation of, Ath of uh, Arius. That was Eusebius of Nicomedia, whose basic sympathies were Arian, and Theogenes of Nicaea, Bishop of Nicaea. He too. These two guys said, I'll go ahead and sign it, but I certainly will not support the anathema at the end. For this, they were both removed from their bishopric, bishoprics and banished. But pretty soon, they didn't like, they decided they didn't like being banished and came back and were willing to sign the creed in its entirety. Only two bishops and Arius refused to sign the Nicene Creed. Only two bishops and Arius refused to sign the, the Nicene Creed. Theonus and Secundus. These are the two. Theonus and Secundus are the two Egyptian bishops who refused to sign. All three were then subsequently excommunicated and banished. Not these two. These two were banished and excommunicated. These two were banished because they wouldn't agree to the last part of Nicaea. But after thinking better about it, after a while, they decided that they better go ahead and sign the whole thing. These two here. Theonas. T-H-E-O-N-A-S. Uh, one of the things that's interesting about Nicaea is that you have a lot of people who affix their signature to this creedal statement 
and yet they have reservations. The power and the presence of the emperor, I suspect, had a great deal to do with that. And because their hearts were not entirely in tune with what they had signed, we're going to find out that there is a considerable uh, aftermath to this story. Now, there were a couple of other matters that were uh, mentioned in uh, the Council of Nicaea. I want to mention them pretty quickly. <coughs> One of them, and this is I, I find somewhat interesting, is that they start at Nicaea to designate those bishops that have preeminence over other bishops. So it's concluded at Nicaea that the bishops of Rome, Antioch, and Alexandria are to be recognized as the top three churches, bishoprics. Rome, Antioch, and Alexandria. Now, they, in fact, they're given a title to distinguish them from the other bishops. They are called patriarchs. Uh, later on, in later centuries, uh, the bishop of Constantinople is made uh, into a patriarch. In fact, that language is still used today. And then later on, the bishop of Jerusalem in the 5th century is accorded the title of patriarch to distinguish these five from the other bishops in Christendom. So that's one issue. There's this, this uh, elevating of certain bishoprics over others. And we find that taking place even at Nicaea. Did you have a question, Dave? Antioch. Oh, the last two. Well, I just mentioned that in, in uh, Jerusalem and Constantinople. Also acquire the title, the bishop of each of those two places becomes a patriarch, which means they're hot, they have a, a preeminence above other bishops. Uh, 334 for Constantinople and 451 for Jerusalem. Uh, no, it's not quite the same thing, no. No, it's not. Uh, these are just preeminent bishops. These are, bis these are bishops above other bishops. You know, we're, we're starting to get into uh, a ranking early on. When they use that term patriarch, are they intentionally referring to the Old Testament use of the Well, they're fathers. They're, that's, it's, a, it's a very natural term. Uh, these are, it's almost like an elder. It's, it's, it's a, a fatherly, uh, spiritual father to the other bishops. Okay. Yes. No, it's. I, I don't think. I don't think politics plays the major role here. These are just churches that have been associated with uh, uh, either, either a uh, an apostle had been involved there, or some theologian uh, who had a great deal of influence. A school of thought. I mean, there were a school of thought at Antioch, a school of thought at Alexandria. Prominent theologians associated. So they had they had emerged from the pack, if you will, and they had they had they were recognizing their international influence. It becomes that where there are other bishops who sort of report to them. 
That does happen. They're called metropolitan bishops. The city. No, it was a city, and and that that honor stayed with that whoever with the office in that city. That's right. Do you have any idea? Did they have any particular privileges quarterly they rank? I think mainly just in terms of respect. Uh, I don't know that they got a higher salary. Uh, you know, but they had respect, and and because these were larger cities, larger churches, they probably had uh, larger place, larger churches, and and larger houses. But I think it's mostly in terms of honor here. I just wonder what made them. So Why did they emerge? Each of the many cities. Well, these were just cities that were most influential. And they emerged from, from the pack. The other question dealt with, and I'll press on here, at Nicaea was resolving the so-called Easter controversy. Uh, Christians in the East had tended to follow the pattern of the Jewish Passover, which celebrated Easter on the 14th day of Nisan the 14th day of Nisan in the eastern yeah the eastern part of the empire and so the point is it would be celebrated on this date regardless of the day that it happened to occur on whether it's a Friday or a Monday or whatever just the 14th of Nisan and these folks were called quartrodecimans, or the fourteenthers. So you can note that term up there. It's Q-U-A-R-T-O, decimans, D-E-C-I-M-A-N-S, Latin for fourteen. Now the Roman church, or the Western church, took a different view about the dating of Easter. They argued that because Easter is associated with the resurrection, that it ought to occur, that it ought to be on Sunday. And so they said that Easter should be celebrated on the first Sunday after the 14th of Nisan. So one group celebrates Easter according to the day of the month. The Western church, Western side of the empire, want to celebrate Easter according to the day of the week, Sunday. At Nicaea, it was decided in favor of the Roman or Western view to celebrate Easter on Sunday every year. Now, what comes out of this is are some interesting little little sidelights. Uh, in order to set the date every year, that responsibility was given specifically to the Bishop of Alexandria, whomever he might be, it was his job, in view of, of the decision reached at Nicaea, to every year send out an Easter letter designating the day, the Sunday, that Easter should be celebrated. That was his job. 
It's also, the Easter letter is also called a festal letter, F-E-S-T-A-L, letter. You may remember that one of these Easter letters or one of these festal letters had some significance with regard to the question of the New Testament canon. Later on, Athanasius becomes the bishop of Alexandria. And when it comes time for him to send out his Easter letter designating the date, the Sunday, on which Easter will be celebrated throughout the empire, he decided to add some interesting little tidbits. And one of the things that Athanasius added in his Easter letter of 367 A.D. I mentioned this in a previous lecture last week. He happens to mention and identifies the exact same 27 books of the New Testament canon that we acknowledge today. And it's the Easter letter of 367 A.D. that is the first sort of church statement that corresponds exactly with our New Testament canon. And that comes out of this decision at Nicaea that the Bishop of Alexander sends out his Easter letter. Athanasius takes some liberties and goes beyond just setting the date for Easter and adds other uh, bits of information, in this case, about the New Testament canon. Well, in July of, of 325, the Council of, of Nicaea ceased. Uh, the first ecumenical council. Athanasius says of the Council of Nicaea, he calls it, quote, a true monument and a token of victory against every heresy. So Athanasius thinks very highly of Nicaea. What you find at after Nicaea is that imperial policy shifted from one party, the party of Alexander and Athanasius, to the other side, more or less. The same Arius who was excommunicated at the Council of Nicaea in 325 was reconciled to the emperor two years later. He was. Arius made some sort of vague profession that he believed in orthodoxy and uh, Constantine accepted it. Now, some have argued that this is probably evidence that Constantine wasn't really theologically aware of the gravity of the issues. At about the same time that, that Arius is reconciled with the Pope. And in fact, uh, Arius tries to get his old job back at Alexandria. What did I say? Sorry. Anyway. Uh, no, no. <laughs> I forgot what I said. Anyway. They're going along here. Do I? Yeah, I'm, uh, I'm trying to remember what I, how I said that. Arius is, try, is reconciled with Constantine, okay? And about the same time, you find those two persons, Eusebius of Nicomedia 
and Theogenes of Nicaea, who had been unwilling initially to support the condemnation of Arius in the Nicene Creed, now they are becoming much more vocal in their opposition to the language of homoousion or homoousios. Constantine seems to have been listening to Eusebius of Caesarea and been encouraged to take a more tolerant attitude toward the Arians. Now, despite the fact that Constantine seems to be undergoing a shift, that doesn't, of course, mean that Alexander and the Orthodox party are shifting at all. Alexander dies in 328, and he is succeeded by his young assistant, the very determined Athanasius. And in a very real sense, the aftermath of Nicaea is very much involved with, interwoven with the life of Athanasius. We're talking now about 328 is when Alexander died. Three, 20, three years after Nicaea. Of course, Athanasius refused Constantine's request to reinstate Arius in Alexandria. And for this, Athanasius is banished from Alexandria, sent to Gaul, or which is modern-day France. But even the people in Alexandria absolutely reject Arius. They don't want him back. Athanasius has, and Alexander have done a good job of teaching uh, their view. So the people don't want him either. And they refuse absolutely to readmit Arius to the communion at Alexandria. So Arius goes looking for a church that will accept him. And he finds one in Constantinople. An irony of ironies. The night before Arius is to be welcomed back, back into the Orthodox Church of Constantinople, the Christian Church of Constantinople, he dies. And so he never is formally admitted to a church after his condemnation at Nicaea. Now, the Orthodox party see this as divine judgment. Of course. The Arians see, suspect that he was poisoned. <laughs> Who knows? Well, by, by this time, Constantine himself is getting older. He dies in 337. But interestingly enough, on his deathbed, remember... Uh, some folks believed it better to postpone baptism until just before you die. Well, Constantine was one of those persons. And so on his deathbed, who does he turn to to baptize him? None other than the Arian bishop Eusebius of Nicomedia. Again, this may suggest that uh, Constantine is not fully aware of the theological gravity of the debate between Arius and Alexander. So he was baptized on his deathbed. On his deathbed, that's right. Constantine was. After the death 
of Constantine in 337 A.D., the Roman Empire is divided between his three sons. The three sons are Constantius, Constantine II, and Constans. I know, that's why I wrote them down. Constantius, Constantine II. Well, that one of them dies pretty quickly, so you only have to remember two. And Constans. Very close. Constant, Constantius, Constantius ruled in the east, including Egypt, and that will be very important later on. Constantius ruled in the east. His, his kingdom included Greece, Asia, and Egypt. Constantine II ruled in the west, particularly Britain, France, and Spain. And Constans ruled in the west, particularly in Italy, uh, parts of Africa, and Eastern Europe. Now, real quickly, Constantine II, who is the oldest of the three sons, decides he wants to overthrow his younger brother, Constans, C-O-N-S-T-A-N-S. But in the battle, Constantine II is killed. So now there were two. What you find now is you have Constantius in the east and Constans in the west. And here we have a major, not only political division, but religious division. Constans in the west supported Athanasius. Constantius in the east supported Arius and the Arians. You got that? Constantius is in support, is, the, is in the east, and he supports Arius and the Arians. Constans is in the west, and he supports Athanasius. Right. He inherited that. Well, he actually won it in a battle. So, now, this division into two parts now creates serious problems for Athanasius because the one who rules in the east where Alexandria is is an Arian. So Athanasius finds himself in real trouble. Shortly after Constantine's death and the division of the empire into two parts, Athanasius is exiled, kicked out of, Al of Alexandria for a second time. He had returned before and now is exiled a second time in 339. Now, I'm going to mention 339, Athanasius is exiled. He returns, let me say this again. After Constantine died in 337, uh, then the empire is divided into two parts after one brother kills the other. 
Athanasius, in the midst of all this turmoil, was exiled and now returns to Alexandria in 338. But as things shake down, it's the Arian who controls the east. And so in 339, Athanasius is exiled for a second time from Alexandria. Now the reason I mention these, these exiles is because as we go along here, we're going to find that Athanasius is probably the most tenacious church father we have ever known because he is banished a total of five times and he keeps coming back. So we've gotten two so far. Two banishments. The second banishment, Athanasius flees to Rome in the west where the emperor Constans is a supporter of Athanasius. So Athanasius goes to Rome and he has the support there of the Roman bishop Julius. Well, obviously, the two brothers, east and west, see that they've got a problem on their hands. A religious problem, which spills over into political problems. So how are they to address this? Well, they decide to have a church council, another church meeting. There are lots of them. And in 343, there is a church council of Sardica. S-A-R-D-I-C-A in 343. The Arians, the Arian bishops essentially don't show up, which leaves the council in the control of Bishop Julius of Rome and Hosius of Cordova, still around after all these years. And as a result, they take a very strong orthodox view, upholding Nicaea in 343. And again, with this formal statement in support of Nicaean orthodoxy, Athanasius once again returns to Alexandria in 346. But the fortunes of the Nicaeans suffered decline in 350 A.D., when Constans, the emperor in the West and the supporter of Athanasius and Orthodoxy, <clears throat> dies. 350 A.D. Constans, the supporter of Orthodoxy, dies. And now the whole Roman Empire is under the rule of Constant Constantius, a supporter of the Arians. Constantius calls a series of church councils. I've mentioned them here. Uh, Sirmium, Arles, and Milan, all three of which affirm an Arian view. All of them uphold Arianism. Constantius forces Arian decrees upon the entire church. And anyone who opposed the Arian views was banished. These are all councils or synods. Yeah. These are councils of Sumerium, Arles, and Milan. These three all support Arius, although Sardica supported Athanasius. And these are not ecumenical councils, no. 
even Hosius of Cordova is actually deposed from his uh, bishopric. And for a third time, Athanasius is again exiled from Alexandria in 356 A.D. He is replaced by a notorious Arian in Alexandria by the name of George. George of Cappadocia. <laughs> I like, I just, just, there's a certain kind of edge to that. George of Cappadocia. So, 356 for the third exile, banishment. Athanasius flees to the desert from 356 to 361 and he lives with the, the desert monks who hide him and protect him from the Arians. And he continues to have an influence in Alexandria, although he's, he's sort of out in the desert hiding. One very sad episode results uh, with this, this uh, rise of Arianism and it gaining the ascendancy. Bishop Hosius of Cordova, he had been, and you I've said it tonight, was one of the strongest supporters of Nicene Orthodoxy. But with Constantius in power, he puts a very elderly Hosius in prison, a long imprisonment, and has makes terrible threats against Hosius. Finally, the old man, the old upholder of Nicene Orthodoxy, capitulates. And he signs an Arian document, a document from the Council of Sirmium, which had upheld Arianism. The old man had given in. But the story's not over. Hosius was let out of prison. He headed back to Spain. And there, he completely repudiated his rejection, his, his recantation. And he died as an upholder of Nicene Orthodoxy. <laughs> so he had the last laugh, in a sense, I suppose. A very similar story occurs with the bishop of Rome, Liberius, L-I-B-E-R-I-U-S. Liberius, in this time of Arian ascendancy, is also exiled and, and, and imprisoned, and he too capitulates, signs an Arian confession, but then once he is free, he again recants his recantation, and he dies in a Nicene faith. The point of all of this is to say that a lot of pressure is exerted on these folks. And it leads them to, to uh, affirm things they don't believe to save their skins. Persecution has a way of doing that, of turning us into hypocrites. Well, there's more to be said. The story is not over. But I leave you with this. Arianism is on the ascendancy. But that's not the end of the story. We'll finish that next time.
This audio lecture is brought to you by RTS on iTunes U at the virtual campus of Reformed Theological Seminary. To listen to other lectures and to access additional resources, please visit us at itunes.rts.edu. For additional information on how to take distance education courses for credit towards a fully accredited Master of Arts in Religion degree, please visit our website at virtual.rts.edu.